Good evening, and if you're just tuning in, you are listening to the Angel Rock and United Public Radio Network. I am your host, Laura Lee Potvin. If you are listening and you'd like to watch the show, please come over to either UPRN, as we call it's Facebook page, or UFO Paranormal Radio Network, it's also under. Same as on YouTube, or you can watch it on UFO Gods and Extraterrestrials. Um, there's people that go on my Facebook page, I know, to watch it, as well as my YouTube channel. Just so you know, my personal stuff does not come up in comments, and I know we had some great questions and comments with this phenomenal favorite guest from my show, who I'm going to introduce in just one second. So please join us, like I said, on UFO Paranormal Radio's Facebook page, or you can join us on one of our YouTube channels I just mentioned. Hi, Dave. Uh, a little bit about myself and the show if you've never been here before. The Angel Rock, I say I cover all aspects of the supernatural as well as the esoteric field. And I have people from everyday walks of life that whatever they're doing, and these are my guests in the way professionally or, or extracurricular curricularly, my mouth doesn't want to work, uh, they're making a positive change for humanity. A little bit about myself, I'm a Canadian clairvoyant medium, crystal Reiki energy healer, Kashic Records practitioner, spiritual teacher and mentor. I'm also a registered nurse. And I'll give a shout out to Jeannie from the UK. She's here as well. Welcome. And this guest we just had on a few weeks ago, I know that my viewers and listeners love him. He is well known. He has has his own incredible channels on YouTube, including Fifth Kind TV. He is a author. He, I, I'm going to let him fill in the blanks because his his bio is so long. It's Paul Anthony Wallace. Welcome, Paul. How are you? Good day, Laura Lee. I'm tip top. Thanks. It's early in the morning, so I'm in just Australia. My so thank on. you. That's right, on the other side of the world. But it's great to be with you again. Thank you. It is. <laughs> Now I know I missed a ton. What did I miss from um, from your your bio? Because the last I think it was two shows ago. I know I messed a little bit of it up. So please feel for anybody that doesn't know you, because like I said, you are a fav favorite guest on my on my channel here, my show. So thank you. So what did I miss in your bio? <laughs> well, people know me for my Eden series, my books in the yes. field of paleo contact. Mm -hmm. And paleo contact is the theory that our ancestors had contact with other civilizations, with ET civilizations in the past. Mm -hmm. And my route into that surprises a lot of people because my background is in church yes. ministry. Mm -hmm. 33 years in church-based ministry as a church doctor, theological educator, training pastors, and as an archdeacon in the Anglican Church in Australia. That's like the Episcopal church episcopalian church in the usa an archdeacon is one down from a bishop and it's kind of a troubleshooting role mm -hmm. but it was the middle role theological educator that got me down the rabbit hole into the realm of human origins human potential and the question of paleo contact and in particular a topic called hermeneutics and in hermeneutics well, that's a term for me <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry, oh, I well, I'll tell you what it means. Hermeneutics okay. is the principles of interpreting ancient texts. Got you. And so that's something that I would train pastors in. And we'd look at things like form criticism, which is where whatever text you're reading, you have to ask what kind of literature is this I'm reading? Is this a record? Is this a chronicle? 
is it history with interpretation? Is it poetry? Is it apocalyptic? Is it prophetic? What are the clues in the text and in the context to tell you which it is? And then how do you handle it in the light of that? And then we'd also look at something called source criticism, okay. which is simply where you ask, where did this text come from? Are we reading the original form? Does it differ from the original form? And if so, how? And if so, why? Because that reveals the author's agenda. And then always we'd ask the fundamental question, what do the words mean? And it was simply using those tools on certain anomalies and the stories we tell from out of the Bible that led me down the rabbit hole into the world of paleo contact by addressing some key translation issues I could see there was another layer of story hidden in plain sight in the pages of the Bible. And that was the beginning of my journey. I have one question for you, but it's going to lead into another. I, I, I wish that you could be teaching what you just put out there with looking at what we have for source material and the questions we need to be asking ourselves. Imperative. But I meant to ask you this the last couple of times. I've never asked you. So it'll be a quick answer. What exactly is a church doctor? Or I don't think I've ever heard that before. Well, a church doctor is, is not an official title. It describes different kinds of work that people do in churches. Sometimes they're called, sometimes they are called church doctors. They're often called consultants, ministry companions, mission companions, okay. intentional interim Um a church doctor is someone who goes and helps a church with a specific thing. Okay. And so a lot of my church doctoring has been helping churches to launch from scratch. And then some of it has been going in as a troubleshooter where a church has had a problem that it's not been able to fix. Perhaps for decades, there's been some uh, problem that is repeated that has been very damaging and destructive to the progress of the church. And every couple of decades, it will repeat. Different people are involved, but the exact same thing will happen. And the cycle somehow has to be broken. You have to work out what is going wrong. Absolutely. How do we address it? And at the sharp end of this spectrum of church doctor assignments is the work of an intentional interim, where, for instance, um, you would go into a church where there's been that's three or four pastors who've gone in healthy and then they've been invalided out with mental illness. Interesting. Or where for 30 years um, all the children in the parish become sick. And wow. so you know that there's something happening at another level. It's not just a political or a governance change you have to address. There's a spiritual layer to the story that you have to address. Um, how do you shift that? Is there a demonic issue? Is I was it, hoping we were going to say that. Okay. Is it a demonic issue associated with the land or with the buildings or with something that's happening among the people or are there groups around the church that affect the health of the church? And so the church doctor has to go in, diagnose the problem and then work out how do we address this? because no denomination wants to send in a fourth pastor who's going to have to be invalided out or whatever it is, or keep caring for people whose, whose children cannot stay well while they're in a particular church. So that's what a church doctor does. And when you do that kind of work, 
clearly it exposes you to um, paranormal phenomena yeah. that can be quite stretching to your worldview because this isn't work that you're trained to do at theological college. Mm -hmm. You have to learn it um, on the job, so to speak. And so very often you're confronted with things that your training has given you no prep for. Wow. And then you have to go back to the texts and other people's texts and the folklore of people in the ministry and say, how do we approach this? And sometimes you just have to follow your nose and let spirit guide you, which is um, pretty much the only method there is when you're in that kind of territory. I'm going to have to ask you to come back to do a show about this another time because I want to get to your book because I've been seeing the reviews. I've been seeing all kinds of stuff because even Jeannie Spencer went, wow, this is interesting. And every time they read your, your bio, I see this time and I go, oh, I forgot to ask him. I'm going to ask him on air. So thank you. That is fascinating. Fascinating. Because, you know, even as a nurse or a medical doctor, whatever it is really in life but i find that we're, we're talking about these even these kind of things there's book work but really where the learning comes in is life experience and you are right that something like this that you haven't been necessarily you know this wasn't covered in the curriculum you've got to rely on other people that have dealt with this what's your experience and i imagine speaking to a variety of people and then finding something that really fits the unique characteristics i guess of the church that you're working with so this is fascinating i, I, hope I okay i'll tell you a little story from okay. this realm as while we're on a roll because it is very interesting okay. i went to one particular church as an intentional interim and i was in the weeks and months before i went trying to get some clarity, some guidance on how to approach this because it right. was the most heavy duty church doctrine uh, I had done to that point. Wow. And I kept getting the phrase, you are going to make bitter waters sweet. Mm. And I thought, oh, well, that's a lovely metaphor. This is a mistake I often make that when I get some resonant phrase yeah. come into my mind that seems to be from the outside, <laughs> I assume it's a spiritual message. Right. And that's how I read those words, to make bitter water mm -hmm. sweet. And I thought, what a lovely metaphor mm -hmm. for uh, church doctoring. I think we're getting a little bit of noise off your mic. You are right. Uh, Thank Laura. you. I forgot. And Del usually reminds me, it's my Super 7 crystal. Please forgive me, guys. And I forgot. That was the last thing. Give me a sec. Let me take it off. No, no worries. Hi, uh, Carrie Longdock, who's saying hello to us. I told her you were coming because she had some great questions and, and comments All right. that we got into. Thanks, I will Paul, be for ready for your questions. Got lots I'll be ready for your questions, Carrie, and in a moment. I really appreciate it. Thank you, because I completely forgot about it. Go ahead. Sorry. No worries. So uh, that's how I uh, took it, that it was a metaphor for community healing. Mm -hmm. Well, I got to the parish, and I was being shown around the parish, and it was full of images of water. And the person showing me around said, have you noticed all the banners and art here are of waterways? And I said, yes, I did notice that. She said, that's because the name of this suburb is the name of a waterway. All the streets in the suburb are named after rivers and waterways. Mm -hmm. Make bitter water sweet is in the back of my mind. I'm mm -hmm. thinking, oh, it's is perfect. this something, this is more physical, this is more practical. 
than I thought it was. And as I got to know the history and began to hear some of the untold stories and hear some of the taboo facts about the place, I began to think the healing of the waters is something physical. It's not a metaphor at all. And I thought, well, how do I do that? I've never done that before. And who do I talk to about that? Yeah. So um, I was weighing up who on earth I could say this to who wouldn't think I was absolutely crazy. So I told a young friend of mine who had been involved in some acts of spiritual cleansing that were done through the campus of the church right at the beginning of my time there. And I knew he had an amazing sensitivity because, without going into detail, his contribution on those two days of spiritual cleansing, I knew related to actual objective things. He had no idea, but I could see he was absolutely on the money with the things he was picking up. Mm -hmm. So I thought, oh, well, I'll ask my young friend. We'll call him Jim. So I went, and he, he was a young guy. He was a, a graduate student. And so I just tried to say it idly in the conversation. Uh, I'm thinking of doing some prayer walking, I called it, around the waterways in the suburb. Mm -hmm. Oh, he said. And he suddenly sat up and he got out his tablet. And he said, if you want to do that, you'll need to go here, 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 and here. He brought up a map of the suburb. These are the three points where water enters the suburb. This is the one point where it exits. If we go to those four points, we'll have the whole suburb covered. I thought, oh, my goodness, I asked the right person. I had no idea. He said, I've been praying over this for some weeks. I had no idea. It was just a hunch that he was the guy I should talk to. The hunch proved correct. Then I spoke to the parish priest of the adjacent parish. And so the three of us came to a day where we simply went to those four points and we did everything we could think of everything we could find in the Bible, everything we'd ever heard, uh, every hunch we had, we followed to address the waters and seek to cleanse the waters. And if you want to know the punchline to this story, you'll have to go to my website Good. and uh, look it up in the explore section. But some very powerful physical things happened that showed that something shifted on that day. But it only happened because I was following my nose. I didn't have the method pre-packaged. I just had to follow the synchronicities and the guidance that seemed to come, and the outcome was incredible. I will add just to this uh, very quickly, though, when we're dealing with evil, my story involves something that claimed to be demonic, gave me the name, gave me the spelling. In a dream, I remember 16 years ago, like it happened 20 minutes ago, I was raised Roman Catholic, went to Roman Catholic, uh, Catholic school my whole life. I'd been made to go to church. I'd never heard this name before, but I never forgot it. It wasn't very long, the name. And I eventually found out who and what this was, the name. But my whole point in saying this is they don't forget who you are. They never forget who you are. And especially something so powerful and the people that you worked with, with the physical characteristics that you're talking about. Now, speaking of intuition, not that I was very excited always about you coming on here. You know that I'm getting goosebumps saying this to you. This is my sign for truth from spirit. And it may not come up tonight, but I'm going to put it out there. And anybody in the chat that wants to add their input, 
I work with two beautiful ladies with spirit. Uh, we connect, we get little messages, kind of like what's going on with the world. Is there anything that we could be helping with or interpreting it? What have you? And one of the ladies wrote something today. She left a voice message. We have a three person chat and I knew it intuitively to ask you about this. And again, it may not come tonight, but she got the message that spirit kept waking her up during the night telling her how important this was do not forget this and it had to do with a bunch of gold shooting through the sky falling to the ground but the thing that really stuck with me and all what you've just talked about interpretation of texts and symbology on the shows that we've done together she kept getting falling upside down fours i kept hearing have a seat and I forget, I'd have to look at my notes the other thing but have a seat and I didn't take oh we're here uh it's time we are here and I was going to ask if you had ever heard I, I tried doing some research and I couldn't find anything have you ever seen a symbol like that before uh, ever before and I'm not meaning to put you on the spot or if you've ever heard of anything like this before because apparently this is imminent it didn't feel ominous it felt positive and I definitely felt an ET connection to it well that was the only research I got was some of the interpretations of the upside down for the letters E and T came up I forget what le um, I thought isn't that interesting it was after I'll stop talking because I know it's very it. interesting I don't have any insight <laughs> okay. on upside down fours mm -hmm. Um, so we'll have to uh, go away and do some homework and come back uh, on Okay, that. But, you know, I told her and the other lady I work with, I said, you were coming on tonight. And again, we were laughing about how spirit always gives us little puzzles, like what you were talking about with that little statement. I said, I'm going to ask Paul yes. on air tonight. And I knew that we may not have the, number, the answer right now, but I'm putting it out there for anybody else who may hear this and feel like they have some input i'm open to hearing but let's get into your book holy cow paul this book out of the i'm going to call it the trilogy with the eden series this has been incredibly well received not that your other books weren't but let's talk about that what's been happening with your book and we'll get into it for anybody that hasn't heard about your incredible series if you don't mind well echoes of eden uh from my perspective as the writer did follow on Mm -hmm. from Escaping from Eden and the Scars of Eden. Mm -hmm. I've tried to write it in a way that somebody could come to that as their first Paul Wallace book, their first Eden book, mm -hmm. and it will make perfect sense to them. And I'm delighted to hear feedback from people who have read Echoes first, and it works perfectly well for them as a gateway book into the territory of human origins and human yes. potential. The reason I knew I had to write it is that there were certain loose ends from the first two, Escaping from Eden and the Scars, and scars. of Eden. Mm -hmm. When you get to the end of Escaping from Eden, you've, you've followed my journey from sort of mainstream Christian orthodoxy into one where I'm teaching paleo contact. And by the end of that book, together we realize there are huge implications for not only our past, understanding our origins, but understanding our present, who we are now, what are we capable of today? Mm -hmm. And we leave off uh, at that point, really, at the end of Escaping from Eden. And then The Scars of Eden goes into sort of the psychological 
geopolitical after effect of contact in the deep past and finds evidence for it all around the world in the ancestral narratives of cultures all around the world, indigenous story, world mythology. And by the end of the Scars of Eden, you realize that the answers to some of our deepest questions are maintained by the world's indigenous traditions. That if you want to find humanity's memory of ET contact, which is a phrase I keep using, it is to the indigenous peoples you have to go. If you want to find protocols for actualizing our higher cognitive abilities, which our ancestors said we had, and that theme is interwoven (laughs) with the stories of human origin, Mm -hmm. then it is to our folkloric traditions, the narratives of indigenous peoples around the world that you have to go. And so that's where I go in Echoes of Eden. And I find that all around the world, there is this thread of information that interweaves human origins, human potential, paleo contact, higher cognitive powers, that it's all around the world and all through history, governing powers have pushed it out of mainstream education, mainstream news, mainstream conversation. And yet somehow it survives. Sometimes there are brutal efforts to get rid of the information that indigenous people carry. And so we have horrendous periods of brutalization, stolen generation, exterminations, slaughters. Mm -hmm. With every invasion that you study and colonization, there's this deletion of the old ways and the old information and a replacement with uh, the religious orthodoxy of the colonizing force. You can go to any place in any period and you'll see this pattern of official information and then the grassroots information. And it's here in the grassroots information that the insights into human origins and human potential reside. And so Echoes of Eden shows that pattern, shows how it happens, why it happens, and highlights the fact that the information is there for us if we're willing to reverse some of our prejudices and be willing to go to people who have often been the losers in the story of history, go to the marginalized and the suppressed and the persecuted indigenous traditions of the world, and that is where you will find the wisdom of the ages. That's sort of the message of Echoes, but it does it in a way that's full of story, full of humor, and full of bits and pieces you can actually do and take home and do something about. I I love it. I'm going to comment here and then comment on what you said, because, yeah, Dave Petrella said it may have about the four. I'm going to back up a little bit to do with Jesus, Jupiter. Jupiter's symbol is a four. And Carrie says she said this really resonates with her. I'm going to see what comes through. And the reason I'm going to tie this back to your book, this message, because I was thinking about and I smiled when you were talking because I was that was going to be something else I was going to say. What are the efforts that governments have gone to suppress this? And as always, Paul, again, not cold here. We're in summer <laughs> goosebumps because I was going to ask you that and you you, you uh, mentioned it. But that was part of this message I got from Spirit as I was, I kept re-listening to the voice message from my friend, is enough is enough. We're here. But I got the feeling from seeing or 
as I was, I, I get visions, I'll get, I'll hear that right now it, they're moving closer to the physicality, if you will, of earth. Yes. I know that they're here already, but enough is enough. Like they're here, like this is, this has to stop. Now people, people listening, I'm not saying that ETs are coming here to save anybody. I think that this whole thing and it's my personal opinion. Yes, we are in the apocalypse. Apocalypse means to reveal once which was once hidden. Once you take the lid off that box, you can't put it back on again. So we move forward in a new direction. It's a death of an old way, if you will. So to me, yes, we are in the apocalypse. But I think this is about humanity. Like you said, going back to the old ways, but realizing as humanity, we stand together, we unite and who we are and start discovering some of the truths about, like you said, who we are. That's right, about who we are and what the company is uh, in which we live our lives on this planet and in this corner of the cosmos. And in writing Echoes of Eden, I had to process some um, thoughts that were new to me, have been new to me in recent years, okay. because if you say, well, if I say the word alien, to most people, then we'll immediately think of um, Alien versus Predator, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, mm -hmm. uh, Mars Attacks, Independence Day. I always feel and like it's have disrespectful. This, <clears throat> I, I don't know we, why when I'm referring. Yeah, mm -hmm. We have this uh, image that's very um, cartoonish and dramatic and terrifying. Mm -hmm. But when our ancestors speak about contact, they talk about a whole spectrum of contact experiences mm -hmm. and yes there have been contact experiences that were traumatizing and terrifying mm -hmm. but the first contact experiences that most cultures report are of a positive contact of visitors in the deep past nurturing our ancestors teaching them how to live in balance with the planet teaching mm -hmm. them the secrets of agriculture so that they could thrive as a species on the planet's surface so there's a whole spectrum in that way, but there's also a spectrum in the sense that in Escaping from Eden, I talk about the Sumerian stories, That's which are very, I think, they're very 3D. We've got uh, a, a colonization of our ancestors that's quite similar in a way to the way we've colonized each other's countries in the eons since. Mm -hmm. And it fits with a very physical, three-dimensional notion of what contact is. You know, a UFO arrives, a flying saucer lands on the ground, and some beings come out, and we have a conversation. That's mm -hmm. a classic picture of contact. But when we listen to ancestral narratives, contact can look like that and has looked like that, but can it, it can also be something very, very different. And it can be something that you might miss or that you might mislabel. And so when I go to traditional healers, for instance, in Echoes of Eden in Southern Africa, to the Sangomas and Nangas of Swaziland, Zambia, uh, South Africa, if I go for healing, they will perceive me entering the room surrounded by an invisible cloud of helpers who they will then want to tune in to what they're saying to their own invisible team because they'll be having a conversation about how to help me the patient that's how progress I work. in life 
and mm-hmm. deal with my my physical and mm-hmm. other problems. Mm-hmm. I know that's how you work as well, Laurelie. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, there would be healers all around the world from all sorts of different cultural standpoints yes. who have found their way into that modality, a modality that says that healing is a contact modality. Mm-hmm. And having discovered that in other traditions, I've gone back and realized that's in the Bible as well. It's in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what's kind of curious is that whether I'm talking to a Sangoma in Southern Africa mm-hmm. or a traditional healer in Aboriginal Australia or to the writer of 1 John 4 in the New Testament, there's often this slight agnosticism as to who or what the entities are who are providing the information. And I was sort of amused to find this in in 1 John 4 because you expect the New Testament to be Mm -hmm. very, everything's buttoned down and explained, thank you, and this is good and this is bad, this is Mm -hmm. righteous, this is sinful. But in 1 John 4, the writer says, you're going to be getting some good information. There may be some dodgy information there as well. So you're going to have to keep your sovereignty. You keep your autonomy and you weigh up what you hear And just because a being is advanced enough to communicate with you telepathically, or it may be a physical entity that's got advanced um, abilities in travel and they can just materialize in your space and give you a message and then leave, which is like a lot of the angelic stories of the Bible, this may be very impressive. But keep your autonomy, weigh up what you hear. Does it make sense? Do you think that's right? Do you need to do something about that or not? And if you can approach it that way, then you can expect to get some good information is the essential meaning of what's happening in 1 John 4. And what I found interesting is that's contact. Just as much as flying saucer lands yeah. on the, uh, you know, the lawn of the White House is contact. It's all mm-hmm. contact. Our ancestors are completely comfortable with the idea that we've got heaps of company, that they are already here, and that it's really a, uh, a sideshow to wait for some kind of disclosure from government authority to say we've got company, when in fact, at a folkloric level, we've known forever yeah. that we've got company and we've known how to make contact in all that time. I was watching an interview. I think it was one of the documentaries you had put out with Matt. I think Matthew, I started to watch it. Now, I could be mistaken because I watch quite a bit of stuff because you've been on my partner Dell's show too. He's always got documentaries playing and stuff. Where was it going with this now? I lost my mind rambling here. Um, you listened to me talking to Matt LaCroix. Yes. Is that right? Yes, some of it. Yes. And it was very fascinating. Now, again, you got into quite a few topics about uh historical um like how far back in the different civilizations if i'm not mistaken please forgive me if i screwed this up but um where i'm going with this is and again you may not have said it on this documentary so don't quote me but i believe that we are about the fifth iteration of of humanity and and what i want to talk to you about is do you find that yourself? Have you found this in your research where, and it sounded, and again, like I say, I don't want to say because I've watched so much stuff, but it sounds like we get to a certain point as humanity and then we create some sort of catastrophic event and then we've got to restart again. Have you seen any of that? 
Yes, certainly. I think by the time you get to Genesis 11, which mm -hmm. is the story of beginning, stories of beginnings in the Bible, okay. You've probably seen about five planetary resets. Yeah, that's what I was, that's, you say it so beautifully. I'm sorry, it took me so long to get there, but that's so, what I mean. <laughs> what's interesting though, is it's not, um, it's not a story of self-destruction necessarily. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, people might think of the, the Atlantean story where there's a sense that things went wrong in Atlantean society, they were imploding okay. socially, and then the planet responded with the capitalism. And there is this feeling of, is there a lid on how technologically advanced we can get before something awful is going to happen? Mm -hmm. And perhaps growing up in the shadow of the A-bomb, you can see yes. why that's such a resonant idea. But what I find in the Bible and in Greek, Norse, um, Nigerian, uh, Sumerian story is the notion that some of our cosmic company doesn't mm -hmm. want a spacefaring planet Earth, doesn't mm -hmm. want Project Humanity to get that far. In Genesis 3, there's this struggle between two factions okay. represented by two brothers, Enlil, who's the commander of this region yes. of space, and Enki, who is yes. the commander of Project Earth. And they are in conflict over how intelligent and conscious human beings should be. In Genesis 11, you've got the destruction of the Tower of Babel. And yes. that story mirrors what happens in the Sumerian story. The way the Bible tells it, we got so clever that we could build a building that would breach the zoning laws and would build a building too tall. And we got bombed back into the Stone Age for doing that. Well, anyone reading that story thinks, what? A mm -hmm. building too tall and you destroy a technological civilization because of that? Mm -hmm. Dig a little deeper, compare the two stories, and you'll realize, no, something else is going on. Okay. First off, it's not just a building. It's a stargate. Uh... It's a place. It's either, either a launch pad or it is a portal for getting... Uh, people who are described as observers or igiji in the Sumerian story from the planet's surface to their stations in the stars. So this is spacefaring technology of one kind or another. And it was visitors, powerful ones, who come along and say, whoa, we can't have this. And then they do something to... Um, and uh, the damage on, on civilization is profound at that point because we lose our ability to communicate with each other yes. at that point. So some kind of neurological interference is done that either means we can no longer understand each other's minds or we can no longer use speech. It's one of the two, but it's something very violent. And you've got that echoed in other stories. You've got the story of uh, Abassi and Atai in the Nigerian story of the Ethic people, where they realize they've got a capable technological species. So we're going to make them physically ill and mentally ill in order to impede their progress. Or you've got the story of Zeus and Prometheus. Zeus is horrified that mm -hmm. Prometheus has given the human beings technology in the form of yes. fire. And some interpreters say it's not fire, it's firepower. And uh, Zeus says, you idiot, 
and we're going to put a stop to that. And there's a planetary cataclysm implied at that point. And then you've got the story of hybridization in um, Genesis 6, which reoccurs in story all around the world. And this was a breaking of rank. This was a breaking of protocol. And that resulted in a cataclysm designed to genocide whoever was on the planet at that time. So you've got a number of stories that suggest human progress, and then we get knocked down by something external that doesn't want humanity that advanced. And this push-pull of how intelligent, how technological, how advanced, that conflict seems to represent itself in every age and every aeon. But certainly there's a story of previous civilizations in the Bible, and I would question whether all the civilizations have been human civilizations. There's a hint, for instance, in Genesis 9 and Genesis 11, okay. that there was a civilization here on the planet before the separation of the continents. Well, if that's the case, that's before the dinosaurs, that's before the Cambrian explosion. Mm -hmm. That's not us. That's somebody else. And that's even more intriguing. That is intriguing because I was going, I was grabbing a pen. I thought I should have known better. And I was ready for this. I really was like, it wasn't like I was rushing around. I always have the pen because they come up with questions. I wanted to ask you in your research or personal opinion, what the reason is why you believe that we can only evolve to a certain level. And then it seems from what you've, you've spoken about, I'm finding this fascinating about why it seems we almost have a reset because, you know, if it keeps happening, or like you said, if this was before the dinosaurs, it wasn't human beings, who was it? Or like, why does this keep happening? Because when I ask that question in my mind very quickly, I keep hearing because earth is a school, we're here for the development of the soul. And that's all I got. Like I said, I'd have to go into a meditation with you, but I want to hear what you found. Well, <laughs> Yes, I I think that is true. And a short then, period of time we're here too, compared to we are eternal beings, I believe, or souls, I yes. believe. Mm -hmm. But then I would say that was true of all living beings Absolutely. in the cosmos. Absolutely. Yep. We're all here to learn something. We're all part mm -hmm. of a cosmic learning journey. True. We are capable of going further as a race. Absolutely. Uh, I think the agreement among ancestral narratives is amazing on this. The idea that we all have latent abilities in our brains that we yes. can access so yes. that we can be more conscious, we can be more intelligent. So it's not like there's a built-in lid to keep humanity down. Uh, and that's why I stressed, I find a lot of stories of um, external interventions to slow the progress of Project Humanity. And that has to do with the non-human layer to the story. That has to exactly. do with the, what the ancients called the Sky Council, where there are obviously some uh, body of arrangements and agreements among factions who have different views about how far they think humanity should mm -hmm. go. That story of Genesis 3 repeats through the ages, where we've got factions wanting to assist us and support our progress, and other factions saying, no, we don't need them any smarter. We don't need yes. them to know any more than they do. 
And I think that push-pull is even represented in something as prosaic as the congressional he hearings or the Senate briefings, where within the Pentagon, there are people who want more disclosure and others who want less. It's all just a, a, an aspect of this covert layer of governance that decides how much is going to be allowed and encouraged on the planet's surface. But I think we have allies in the Sky mm -hmm. Council, and I think we have company mm -hmm. in the cosmos that is very comfortable with the idea of supporting our progress as a species, yeah. supporting our ascension, our becoming more intelligent and more conscious. And so that gives me a certain optimism for us. That's where I was going with that message that we started talking with the show with that my friend had shared with me. That's what I felt like it was like, I'm laughing and I'm smiling as you're saying this stuff because I have an interview I did with a Canadian uh, lawyer, believe it or not, never planned to get into spirituality or anything, claims he met his spirit guide on the street. And I tried like oh, wow. heck to post that interview last week. I couldn't. It, everything I tried. So it's coming up next week. Finally, his name is Garnet um, Schulhauser. I've been talking about this interview on my shows. And he, like, he's, he met this homeless man on the street. He said normally he would have walked around him. He'd been practicing law by this time almost 40 years in Calgary, Alberta, in Canada. And this man, he said, he, rather than walk around him, he said he was filthy, stinky, horrible hair, like just strings hanging, like really, really had had a tough time. He said, but it was his eyes. They were this glowing bright blue. And he said the feeling of unconditional love was phenomenal. So this gentleman said something to him and went into a store and Garnet went in the store to try and find him could not find him and he said he couldn't let this thought go the reason why i'm bringing this up very quickly because it supports what you said long story short he went back a couple days later and found this gentleman called albert and albert explained that he was his spirit guide now garnet had never heard of a spirit guide didn't know what a spirit guide was anything long story short he said he met him physically three times they now they now communicate telepathically and he brought up the Sky Council. That's why I'm telling this story. And I was smiling because I kept telling him in the interview, what gift you've been given. He was taken by his guide, he claims, to heaven. But to many of these civilizations around the world, many where he claimed there were humans, he got into the Sky Council. So I guess where I'm going to go with this is, what have you found with the Sky Council? Does it relate to your book as well, the newest book? Um, how, how does it, does it interrelate? Like, how do you tie this all in? Or, or are we just sort of going off on a different tangent, I guess is what I'm saying. And I want to pull it back to your book. Well, I introduced the Sky Council in Escaping from Eden. And this was, this flowed on from my realization that this, word Elohim in the Bible, which is yes. the Bible's oldest word that gets translated as God, is actually a plural. And it refers to a multiplicity of advanced beings intersecting with humanity in the deep past. We get to stories of the Sky Council. It appears a couple of times. There's a moment in uh, the book of, I think it's Second Kings, where the prophet Micaiah needs to advise his king on whether to uh, progress a particular military plan. Okay. And to give him good advice, 
he remote views what's going on in the Sky Council. And on the Sky Council, clearly, there are a number of different entities, some physical, if we cross-refer to how they appear in other moments, Mm -hmm. and some that would appear to be iconic energy-based beings that sort of parasite off the energy of biological life forms. Okay. So that's quite a diversity on this council. What are they doing? They're fomenting war. Uh, And that is something the Sky Council appears to do in Sumerian story, Greek story, other stories around the world. So it appears there. It appears also in the book of Job at the beginning where you've got two entities who are toying with a human being in the way a naughty boy in a magnifying glass might toy with ants. This poor human being is being uh, abused in that way as part of some little experiment. And the context of it all is this Sky Council with very diverse entities on it. So that was my introduction to it. Later, I found that uh, others had discovered it as well and written about it. Some had tried to interpret it in a way that this trying to massage it into their old world view of this almighty God figure as the character in the Bible, whereas in fact, I think the almighty God character, if we mean the source of the universe, hardly shows up in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, and he certainly doesn't show up in the beginning. The God stories are stories about something else. But uh, Sky Council, where was I going? There was something else that relates to it, uh, which I have to come back to because I've forgotten okay. where I was going. I, I am just like enraptured here, like just <laughs> I'm loving every second of this because, you know, I never planned on working as a clairvoyant and all this stuff. It came from a paranormal experience with something explaining in uh, a dream. Go ahead. I knew it would bring it up as I, I just, rambled. I just remembered. I just Go remembered. Go ahead. So the other place it cropped up in my research for Escaping from Eden, which is the beginning of my paleo contact series, was finding it in Scotland, or I didn't expect to find it, in the 1600s, in the writing of Robert Kirk, who was a Presbyterian minister in Aberfoyle in Scotland in the 1600s. Now, right away, I'm saying 1600s, Aberfoyle, Scotland, Presbyterian minister. That's a very conservative world I'm describing. A very reformed evangelical, Calvinistic type of Christianity. But Robert Kirk not only had that about him, he was a scholar and he was a pastor. And when he went to Aberfoyle, he sat and listened to the locals describe their own ancestral stories and their own ancestral experience in that part of Scotland. And he began to realize that their experience was full of abduction phenomena by non-human entities. And as he began probing into it, he realized this abduction phenomena was part of a hybridization program and that this hybridization program had never been acknowledged at an official level, even though the people all knew about it. Mm-hmm. And so he began thinking about why is it not acknowledged? Why is there this conspiracy of silence? Why is there this ridicule poured upon the locals' language when they describe these events? And he came to the conclusion 
that there is a non-human layer to the governance of the planet. Ah, there is a, okay. Yeah, there is a Sky Council that is in contact with our own governments at a covert level and that there is an agreement of silence between our covert governments and the non-human layer to keep all this aspect of the human experience undiscussed and under wraps. And he published that in a book called The Secret Commonwealth. And I think he absolutely nailed it. I think what he's saying is absolutely true. He discovered it in Scotland, but the fact is he could have gone into Ireland, Wales, Africa, the Caribbean, Greece, Europe, all around the world, the Philippines, these same narratives exist. And the details that correlate from culture to culture, they're the things that really catch your attention and make you realize that something objective has been remembered by cultures around the planet. And it relates to not only there being a Sky Council, but there being a Sky Council that is in contact with us at a covert government level, which is exactly what Hayama Shed said two Christmases ago. Hayama Shed was the Brigadier General who for 27 years was the Chief of Space Security for Israel. And he stepped forward and briefed the press two years ago saying exactly the same thing that Robert Kirk had said. Robert Kirk had learned it by listening to the people of Aberfoyle in Scotland. Hayama Shed had learned it from 27 years in space security. I, so many questions. Like my, I've been writing. My my mind is just like blown here because it, not everything that you've said is a surprise, but it's like, you know, you go back that far. What, like, I could certainly see say today's governments maintaining the secrecy in exchange for technological advances or what have you. But how do you assure it over all these? It's almost eons. It sounds like of of you know, keeping, keeping this under wraps. And what would be the only thing I could think why they don't want from our conversation right now, humanity to discover our, our real potential and origins is because all control would be lost. If we were able to access what we are capable of doing, part of my message also to people always when I'm working with them, teaching, what have you, is that once humanity discovers this, I would think that the shackles and chains would be removed. But I'm going to add one more thing to that, Paul, is what do you think, though, is keeping the shackles on on our potential? What do you think that is besides belief from childhood, what we're told, what have you? There has, because we've talked about this before. If somebody has had say I've been in a coma or had a severe head injury and they wake up and all of a sudden they can speak a language you never spoke or you know they're they're a prodigy if you will at the piano because they never even could they didn't even have any interest sorry I know you've got a great answer there I'm gonna stop right there well if you go to the Mayan story from out of the Popol Vuh it says that uh, what keeps a lid on us is something in the environment, something that's been released into the environment. So the Popol Vuh tells the story of a vapor that when sprayed over human populations, dumbs us down. 
and limits our perceptual field to what's immediately around us and what our five physical senses can pick up. But prior to that spray, that vapor, the Popol Vuh says our sight was not limited in the way exactly. it is. So if you just pause and think, well, how is our sight limited? It's limited by surfaces. We can't mm. see through, mm. into, or behind things. It's limited by distance. We can't see beyond the horizon. We can't see into deep space. It's limited by time. We can only see the present. We can't see the past. We can't see the future. It's limited by frequency. We can only see this spectrum of radio waves. A dog can see this. A cat can see this. So if we took all those limits off, all of a sudden, you can see radio communications. All of a sudden, you've got remote viewing. You've yes. got future viewing. You've got x-ray vision. Yes. And so the idea is that absent of these toxins in the environment, these higher abilities will start firing off with far greater ease. It's there in the story the Efik people tell of Nigeria, in which these advanced beings, Abasi and Atai, find a, an advanced human species develop beyond their expectations on planet Earth. How do we dial them down? They release devices into the environment that will make us sick uh, emotionally, physically, psychologically. And there's that same motif. We retain the same potential, but there's something in the environment mm -hmm. to damage our overall health, to dial us down. And there is a positive take home from that as well that if you want to be maximally conscious and intelligent, make maximum progress in your life, then make sure your environment is as clean as it can be, that your water is clean, that your food is clean, that you don't live in a soup of electricity and internet, this, that, and the other. There's only a limited extent to which we can turn that down these days. But we can do things to ensure that we're grounded, earthed, and in as healthy an environment as possible, that we are as much in balance with nature as we can be, because that is the environment in which we thrive as human beings. That would seem to be the take home. That makes a lot of sense, mind you. I'm thinking over the centuries what they could have sprayed. Like we, I mean, <laughs> we do a whole show on spray, what they spray now in the soup that we're living in. I always found it very funny there was about two years ago or three years ago, there was this documentary that came out called Earthing. It was like this phenomenal discovery for healing. And it's like, oh my goodness, this has been around for centuries, yeah. eons. That is not new. No, the not problem was, The problem was we needed that movie because it was news to a lot of us. It was, it was. If we, if we had listened to our grandparents, or mm -hmm. to our indigenous neighbors, we wouldn't have known straight away about earthing, that it's mm -hmm. healthy to sleep on the ground, that it's healthy yes. to walk barefoot. If you go and visit um, a traditional healer, one of the first things they're likely to advise you is to take your shoes off. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not going to get recalibrated in a healthy way unless you are connected with the soil of the planet. Mm -hmm. And so it is very, very old knowledge. But the reason that movie had to be made is I agree. a lot of us just didn't know that. No, didn't know it. And it's 
the way spirits always showed me as human beings while we're here is we are meant to be in balance. That means energetically, spiritually, I mean, it could go on and on, but they always, and this is always, this is actually big news to people that I work with. And I'm glad because we work with the people we're meant to work with. I understand that. But I always say, I get a lot of people coming to me that are so stressed. I'm just, I'm stressed. I'm stressed at work. I'm stressed. I'm stressed. And so when you teach them how to ground, And then you talk about connecting to source, to spirit, whatever their belief is, the universe. And I I try to explain it. The video that I I shared this video with many people, these two videos on my channel. And I say, I'm not trying to promote my channel, but it takes longer to explain than it does because so many people believe that meditation you have to be sitting up on the top of some amount, mountain and sitting in the lotus position for hours and hours on end. Don't get me wrong. It's an incredible experience, but it's not necessary. But I believe that we're meant to run energy, if you will, through our entire bodies. I think that's why, you know, the, the Chinese talk about whether it's chi or ki or acupuncture works or things like this. And then I teach people to send that energy, that stress, if they will, connecting, I call it Gaia, I say you can call it the sun of the earth, whatever, and let Gaia take that from you. We live on this planet, I always say, and then let her send all the positive love and energy back to you. And then she will take what you sent and alchemize it. And what I usually use, I don't get that complicated, but the relationship of of plants and trees with us, right? And it's so simplistic. People know that. Now, did you find any of that with your book at all? Or, you know, um, anything to support that? Because I know you mentioned, and you're not going to give away your secrets. And guys, you need to go out and buy this book. I started reading it. I haven't had the time with, I had gotten quite sick there for a couple months. Um, But it caught me on the first page. It just pulls you right in. So I don't want to give away your secrets, but you said there are some things in the book that will help people to take the lid off of these gifts that we believe still exist. Yes, there are, there are some things. I don't want to give too much away. Yeah, I understand. That. The, the purpose of Echoes of Eden is to get people to go and sit at the feet of their own, um, their own local shamanic healers, Love it. indigenous elders, to find out what their own heritage is and then go to the guardians of the folkloric traditions of their own heritage. Uh, And that's where the real gold is to be found. But I have learned along the way that to rediscover that you and I are actually part of the planet and part of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. You know, often when we talk about the ecosystem, looking after the ecosphere, Mm-hmm. It's as if we are not part of it, that we are assisting it in some way. But no, we're part of it. Or parasitic, and, we hear, depending on whose uh, views. Well, <laughs> and depending on what we're doing. Yes, true. Um, but, you know, to go back to the stories of first contact, first contact, as reported by many cultures, is exactly that, a tutelage in how to be part of the ecosystem, how to live in balance with the planet, how to eat the plants, without destroying them, how to live off the plants and ensure there's a harvest next year as well. These are the fundamental lessons that so many cultures describe as being the input of beautiful visitors in the deep past. 
for me personally, the whole Eden series followed a time when I wanted to recalibrate, depressurize, because just now you were saying how we diverted from our, our higher selves and our higher yes. faculties. And it's by being kept overscheduled and overstressed. Yes. And so I'd done a bit of that in my own career and came to a point where I had the opportunity to dial it down, focus on my health, do some deep breathing, some controlled conscious breathing, mm -hmm. get some sun on my skin instead yes. of sitting in an office all day, walk barefoot in the forest instead of in an insulated office or house. And I started doing those things. So those are all really vital things. Pay attention to what I was eating. So clean environment, clean water, yes. clean food, deep breathing, sunshine, earthing. I started doing all those things that sort of reconnected me with um, the, the ecosphere. And what followed from that was a period of healing and rapid learning and okay. a firing off of remote viewing experiences. And as that was happening, I had to stop and think, what does this mean? Why is this happening? Is the one a result of the other? And it was only a long time after that I realized that my ability to do the research I did and deprogram and recalibrate in the way I did so swiftly was absolutely connected with that approach to health and groundedness and connection with the natural environment. So I would encourage anyone to do all those things. I started sleeping on an earthing mat because sleeping on the ground is a little bit less practical where we were living. Yes. I would probably be in hospital with uh, exposure if I, if I tried yes. that uh -huh. the other way. But an earthing mat does it for me. And so I'd recommend all those particular things. But then for more advanced modalities, well, you'll have to read. That answer was perfect. That's Good. what I was hoping. I know you don't. We're going to give it. A, a, and again, people, I'm not I'm not saying I don't gain anything from saying this. I'm telling you, go buy the books. <laughs> Incredible. But I want to do. Thank you. You you answered it beautifully because it gives people an overview and I think some of the most pertinent things that you said there were connecting with the indigenous people of where you live but also with your own roots it's powerful it's even things that I'll talk about when I'm teaching and I really regret this with my own um, mother's mother and I talked to her about this she lived into her 90s and every Christmas she came from England she didn't have an English accent but she used to make this plum pudding with a brandy sauce and what have you. And I kept saying, we called her nanny. I don't know why we called her that, but we did. And I said, you know, I'd love to sit down with you and write down these recipes because one day you will be gone and they'll be gone without you. That happened. But I really, I think from a young age, understood. I always liked elderly people. To this day, I do. They have so much to teach us as I'm getting older myself. But, yes. Um, the stories and the history. But like my grandmother taught me, which is a dying art, depending on where you live, how to can, how to preserve, how to make yes, jam, of course. how to make jelly, yeah. how to make bread. But what I'm saying is, I think that what you said was so powerful, including Paul. And I think with those of us that do teaching, 
is you said yourself, you shared your personal experience that even though we talk the talk, we have to walk the walk. And you said it so beautifully there with what, what you did. So thank you for the way that you answered it. I really appreciate it. I, I resonate with what you say about your your grandmother. Mm -hmm. And yes, Nanny is a traditional name for a grandmother in England. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. So uh -huh. I, had an, I had a Nana and I had a Granny. Okay. Uh, so Nana was my dad's mum, Granny was my mum's mum. Yes. And Granny was the one in particular who knew how to pickle things, how to jar things, how to mm -hmm. turn things into preserves. Mm -hmm. And I've talked in a few of my videos about my grandma and my grand, who they lived in a run of houses with strip gardens behind them, and they all shared the things they grew and produced. Yes, we do too. And that's how they got through the very tough years of the Depression because they knew how to produce their own food. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a matter of surviving uh, and having food to eat when you don't have a lot of money, but they had the folkloric knowledge of if you've been stung by a bee, this is what you do. If you just burnt yourself, this is what you do. And they would have all the natural treatments available. And being born when I was, I was always very skeptical of all the things they could offer. And now I wish I'd been taking notes, mm -hmm. just like you were saying, Laura Lee, because mm -hmm. there was the indigenous knowledge. Mm -hmm. There was the folkloric knowledge. In my own family, as recent as my grandparents, and I should have taken notes, now I have to go looking for it. But that information is still there and still valuable and still effective. I think we're also meant to find things when we find them or we discover it or we learn it or something happens when it happens. And, and even though there's, there's times when things happen where we may not like what happened, sometimes they seem pretty awful. But I always say that if we can look back with perspective, even sometimes a couple of years later and we look back, I always find it usually makes way for something either new or something that you know, it moves something out of the way to make room for something else that was needed to come in. Now, people talk about that being the universe, you know, the whole bit. But is there something more to that in your in your your studies and your research? Is this a gift that we have to manifest from, you know, ET or it, like how does that it, work? It, What's your thoughts? Well, it probably relates to what we were talking about before with each one of us having an invisible team of helpers mm -hmm. where we will get nudged towards the information we need when we need it. But I think that um, certainly growing up in Britain and then living in Canada and then living in Australia, mm -hmm. I've lived largely detached from information that um, would have benefited me to have known all my life. Mm -hmm. And there's been such a concerted effort to distance my generation, for instance, from the uh, inherited knowledge of my grandparents. I think we're the, the around the same age. Knowledge. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to okay. cut you off. I was going to say, I think we're about the same age and I have to agree with you. Sorry, continue. Yeah. I was listening. So I think, you know, plan A is that our Indigenous peoples are not murdered, slaughtered, and marginalized and ridiculed, and we have this information with which to live life. Plan B 
is that our teams will nudge us back into a place where we can get hold of that information in the moments when we need it. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people would put their hand up and say, I think I'm on plan B because I'm very aware of moments where synchronicities have happened, where I have been nudged, where I have met the person who gave me the information I needed. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that all hope is lost, but it would be very much better if we listen with respect to our elders and to uh, indigenous elders from the get-go, because we would all benefit from it. And that's really my purpose with Echoes of Eden, to get people to have an appetite for that and see the value of that. Well, I have to agree with you. And then Jeannie asked you a quick question. All I was going to share is uh, when I was working before I hurt my back, I was asked to set up a diploma course at our local college here for registered nurses, and they're called registered nursing assistants at that time. And it was how to navigate the community because you work on your yourself by yourself. You can't call somebody in like in a hospital and say, what do you think? Do we need to call the doctor? You've got to have a knowledge base. I have to say, because where I live has such a rich Ojibwe culture and smack dab right in the middle of Canada, 35 minutes away from the Minnesota border. So I contacted our, our reserve. It's only 10 minutes away by car. And I said, would you? would you have somebody that possibly with shamanic, you know, abilities or, you know, what have you, an elder that would be willing to come and speak? I have to tell you, I had that gentleman back three times. Every one of those nurses was wrapped, sitting at the edge of their seat. And what was so imperative, okay, you know, we deal with many Indigenous people that were ill because they're not maintaining their ways of life and the diet and what have you, the health issues, seeing the same things over and over, like you mentioned at the church, but with human beings. And when he got into that and how the history had been lost, he got into how they raised their children versus us, why within their, their culture, where I am, I can't speak for every culture. He said, we won't look into your eyes when we speak to you. So many things that as people that have not been raised in that culture would take another way. It was so eye-opening. Mm. I remember he even shared, and even before I got into this work, I've always maintained this. This was years ago. He brought a ancient secret painkiller type of uh, medication, like a liniment you, you would rub on the skin. He talked about traditional things that were important, about the earth, what have you. Just incredible. I've always had such a respect, and I've never forgotten that gentleman, his name or anything. Like I said, my students kept asking me to have him back. And I'm so grateful for what he shared because we were better able to take care of Indigenous people because of the knowledge he shared with us, the energetic exchange. He never accepted money for this This liniment it helped many people like my mother had fibromyalgia and he gave me a bottle and you know not expecting anything in, in return but explaining about how equal energy exchange if you will the whole reason I share this is that's just my little piece right there that I'm sharing so what you're sharing with in in your books I really hope that people can can understand how important this is would you agree does I know you're going to agree but if you can add anything to that, Paul. I think you've said it beautifully, really. I mean, there's a reason this 
information survives. Mm -hmm. uh, and I am really awestruck by what I've discovered in writing Echoes of Eden, mm -hmm. the effort to marginalize and destroy uh, indigenous information has been immense. And yet there is power in the information that ensures that it always survives, always resurfaces. And I like, I'm coming to use the phrase, the wisdom of the ages, mm -hmm. because there really is such a massive overlap of the information and the modalities and protocols curated by different cultures around the world. And I think that the wisdom of the ages really has a power to assist humanity in every yes. generation. And there is some other dimension to the story that means the information will never go away, will, will never ultimately be destroyed despite every effort. And that alone, I think, ought to get our attention and our respect and have us sitting in exactly the way you describe, in awed wonder at what we're being told by these ancient traditions. We grow up in the education system with a basic prejudice that you and I are clever and our ancestors are stupid. Yes. And we just have to flip that and uh, suspend all our disbelief, let go of all our prejudices about who is to be taken seriously and who isn't, and listen and learn. I have to agree with you. And if we could just see that we wouldn't be here without our ancestors. And again, I, I don't know why I maybe it was the time for me to learn it, but being quite young when I learned this, but there was so much to be taken from people that have lived with experience with, with the centuries, centuries before us, the, the, what they share with us. And, and what is really fascinating to me, and then I'm going to I'm going to share these two questions, but maybe I'll, I'll say it, is that there's so many similarities around the world. Now, if there wasn't some truth to that, and how would it exist for all this time to this day that we're having this conversation, and with the amount of research you've done to be able to see, you know, the similarities, there, there has to be some kind of truth to it, they, it, it, assuming that they didn't have the technology that we have today, right? Well, that's right. And then uh, some people groups who deliberately walked away from technology, and I think mm -hmm. that's part of the Aboriginal story in Australia, for instance. And our prejudice is if we look at a people who've made that decision, then we don't have to take them seriously. But I love your story of the spirit guide who was the street guide. Because, mm -hmm. you know, our upbringing would say, well, what could I possibly learn from somebody whose life has gone so horribly wrong that they're now a bump? They're a street person. What and that was, uh, that, well, was actually, <laughs> that was his thought. Well, actually, there's quite a lot. And they don't have to be your spirit guide for you to learn from them. You might learn a lot about how the world works mm -hmm. by talking to the next street person you come across mm -hmm. without them being your spirit guide. But I love how that story completely reverses, you know, your assumptions, your presuppositions, mm -hmm. and gets you to look and listen and realize that every living thing around us I shouldn't even limit it that way. Everything around us mm -hmm. is an avatar of the cosmos. 
is an Ooh, avatar like of cosmic mm -hmm. intelligence, is an avatar of cosmic consciousness, there to experience us and there for us to experience the cosmos. And there can be a learning in all kinds of interactions where we might not expect a learning to happen. So I'm writing a question down for you, but I want to get to Jeannie. She's in the UK. First of all, she said, I'm going to buy Paul's book. I've highlighted that. And then she Aww, put, thank you, Jeannie. Did, she said, where did you grow up in the UK, Paul? Because she's over in the UK right now. And she likes the way you ex explain things. She said, very simplistic, meaning I, I understand what she's saying. Very easy to understand. Oh, good. Well, thank you. That's always my goal. I grew up in Buckinghamshire. And um, I started off in a place called Presswood near Great Missenden, Buckinghamshire. We lived in Chalfont St. Peter for a while, lived in Amersham for a while, if you know that part of the world. And um, that was a lovely place to grow up because it was the place where the commuter belt met farming. And so it was a nice sort of dual world to grow up in. It, it, it's given me this, um, this love of nature that I was growing up there and this love of animals that I was growing up there. And I'll mention it also because of my school. So I never mentioned my school before, but I'll give a shout out to Dr. Hey. Challoner's school in Amersham. And I'm grateful for that school because somehow or other, um, all, all those I'm still in touch with the school, we all speak in a certain way. Uh, and it's when you try and think about what you're going to say before you say it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how that was inculcated into us, but it was. And I think it's probably stood me in good stead as a, as a writer. So those are my roots. Buckinghamshire is where my roots are. But I lived for a while in the city of Bath, which I absolutely love. Lived in Nottingham when I was studying theology. Worked in London. King's Cross, Camden Town for about eight years. And then my last decade uh, in the UK was on the South Coast in Portsmouth. And by the time I'd been there 10 years, I, I'd realized that the South Coast was the furthest north I could live in England because I'm just wired for better weather. <laughs> one of the reasons I'm now in Australia for a little bit more sunlight because I find I really do need that. And if I don't get enough of that, then I, I feel very funky. I hear you. She says she, I highlighted, she said, yes, uh, my first manager was from Amersham. Amersham, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm in Essex, she said, but from East London. Oh, wonderful. Well, mm -hmm. g'day, g'day. And uh, I, it's so interesting where people grow up in Australia, I'm surrounded by uh, a range of accents. The general accent of Australia varies very little around the country. So when you come across someone with an accent, it can stand out. And I'm always amazed by how from time to time I'll be in some shop or some environment and I'll hear an Amersham accent. Uh, I'll, just, I'll recognize it straight away. Well, it's funny about accents, though, too. Because, for example, and I've, I'm living where I've always lived. Um, I, I have no problem with travel. I'd love to travel. I have no problem even with moving if the opportunity arose. But, for example, people from the area, and this is with no disrespect for anybody listening, in southern Ontario, for example, I can tell when they're from um, 
from Southern Ontario. I can tell just by certain words that they say, just probably like you say, well, there is a very distinguishable difference with people with accents from the UK or from England even. I will, when oh, people yes. say where they're from. Mm-hmm. So yeah. can- Canada too, though. I mean, people, some people like Newfoundland, I, I have no clue what they're saying. So I don't know how anybody else would. <laughs> I, I missed out Canada in my story because my mum and dad moved to Canada and lived there yeah. with my brother for, for 10 years. So that's been part of my story as well, commuting between the UK and Montreal. Oh, wow. Wow. I've been to Montreal. I find that the province of Quebec is, and we I promise we won't stay on geography, too many more interesting things to talk about. <laughs> but the province of Quebec, I went on a French exchange, I believe it was for a month when I was 14. And uh, stayed with a family, and she came here the following month. I and they didn't speak any English, so I had to learn how to speak French. But the biggest thing for me going into Quebec is it's like going to a different country. I feel, really, really is. I don't know for yourself, maybe. But yeah, in Canada, it does but... feel that way, mm-hmm. and it's so historic. Yes, um, very. It is, it is an old place in mm-hmm. North America, and the built environment tells you that straight away. But yeah, I think you feel it in the energy of the place as well. Yes, where I live actually has quite a bit of history, including connected to the Hudson's Bay Company, the Voyagers and all that, because where I live is on Lake Superior. Right, I always say that it almost looks like a wolf head to me, Lake Superior, the Great Lake, without the ears. So we live kind of on the shores of where maybe the two eyes would be on a side profile. Uh, that's mm-hmm. the way I describe it. But we had quite a bit of history with that, as well as many landmarks, as most people do. With um, There's quite a bit of legend and lore, for example. And very quickly, we have a mountain about five minutes away from here called the Sleeping Giant. And it's called the Legend of Nanabishu or or Kichigumi. And it's interconnected with the Little Niagara of the north of Kekabeka Falls on the other side of the city. Now, the reason they show this very quickly is there is a silver mine located in the water next to this this mountainous structure. It indeed looks like a giant laying down. And as the legend goes from as we're talking about stories and you know history um that anybody that tries to access that silver mine will perish and nobody has been able to access that silver mine they have indeed perished is one of the world's as i believe largest silver mines now again is there truth to it is there something else that's been woven into this story it's centuries old i don't know just interesting. Is there some ET involvement? I don't know. We have a very active city, paranormally as well as um, UFO and stuff. I don't know. Hard to say, right? Intriguing. It is intriguing. Now, getting back to your book. Sorry, I didn't mean to get off here because I'm just like sitting. On, I can listen to you for hours, Paul. I just every time I talk to you, we learn something new, and it stays <laughs> with me. And I told oh, wonderful. you that. No, especially I still. When we talked, and this was a couple shows ago, about human potential and about the gifts, unlocking those with somebody, you know, say, and I just mentioned it earlier, maybe waking up from a coma or stuff. And the point that stuck with me is you said, is it still there? Like we were talking about human, you know, 1.0, if we're going with this theory, which I do believe that this we had some ET involvement, 
But if we weren't with human 1.0, and I won't say it as eloquently as you did, um, maybe human 1.0 wasn't obliging to be serving um, an extraterrestrial race. So they reformatted the human, but these little secrets are still within our brain. That has sat with me for months because I think there's some truth to that. I really do. Yes, well, it's it's in a number of um, culture stories, so that makes me listen up and <laughs> take me. it seriously. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that those same cultures do have mystical and shamanic protocols designed to activate mm -hmm. our higher faculties. All that goes together. And uh, you mentioned just now that the idea that we have higher abilities latent in our brains is not um, is not uh, absent from the world of serious peer-reviewed science. Mm -hmm. As soon as you start studying the phenomenon you referred to, acquired savant syndrome, you'll learn that peer-reviewed neuroscientists around the world are asking these questions. How mm -hmm. come higher faculties are in our brains in the off position? that yes. they can be knocked on by accident and can we access them without a brain injury mm -hmm. and i think our ancestral narratives say yes we absolutely can mm. now we didn't get into this the last time and you've brought it up and this is something that i have found absolutely fascinating remote viewing you we were going to you've talked about it in your books a bit i believe um, some of the questions can we talk a little bit about how does that come into play what did you find out what did you share well remote viewing is one of those things that i think a lot of people uh if uh, if they're in an amenable social environment will admit they've had a glimpse of yes they've had i had a have. glimpse where they they knew or they could see something that was happening in another place and they're not quite sure how they knew it or how they saw it. It was just a little flash. I think it's quite common. And when I was doing my sunning and earthing and deep breathing, yes. I was finding I was getting more of these um, remote viewing experiences. And I, I just wasn't sure why it was happening. It didn't fit into my paradigm for ministry. It wasn't information the Almighty was giving me so I could go and minister to a person. It was just happening randomly. That I'd be on the phone and I would know what the person looked like at the other end yeah. of the phone and then it would mm -hmm. be confirmed. Mm -hmm. Or someone would talk to me about another mm -hmm. person and I'd know what they looked like and how mm -hmm. tall they were and how they walked. I didn't need to know. It wasn't relevant in any way. Uh, and then a couple of weeks later, I see the person in real life and recognize them from what I've seen in my mind's eye. Mm -hmm. So I've had a few experiences like that of my own. And then a couple of years ago, I was doing an experiment with, um, in the book I call him Carl, and he was six years old, and we're doing blindfold training. Now, we were doing it because I'd seen it in a movie where mm -hmm. people could read blindfolded. And I wanted to know, how real is that? Is that really possible? And if so, how does that work? So I was in a room with Carl, six-year-old, blindfolded. The beginning of the experiment, all he could see was total darkness. And then after a little while, he could call the color of cards being held in front of his face. And then after a while, he could call the color of cards being held behind his head. And then the order of cards when they were stacked 
behind his head. And so as this progressed, this experiment, I was just running out of explanations for mm -hmm. how this could possibly work. And then from out of the blue, the trainer, his name is Bodan, said, Carl, what am I holding under my desk? And Carl said, oh, I see uh, two round uh, rounds of black wire and glass, and then I can see two lengths of black wire. And Bodan says, yes, Carl, you got it. Black wire frame spectacles. Now, those, those specs were under the desk of a trainer. It was off camera. He was in a different continent to us. So I, all my explanations of color receptors on the face, that doesn't work. That's remote viewing. How had we just gone there? So I've had these sort of piecemeal experiences of it myself. Now, through my study, I realized not only is it a notion in ancestral story, so we talked before about sight not being limited, according to the Mayan story, that our ancestors had sight that was not limited. I can find it if I go to Aboriginal elders, and they will they can do it. They can do remote viewing. Mm -hmm. And then as I researched Echoes of Eden, I realized this isn't just something that's part of shamanic life or ancestral narratives. It's actually been a program within US intelligence since the 1970s. They mm -hmm. have employed people to do remote viewing in order to obtain uh, information that has strategic intelligence value. And the US intelligence departments have had that because they found out that the Soviet Union had it. Oh, yeah. And then I discovered it was not new in the 1970s. In fact, when Queen Elizabeth I laid the foundations for Her Majesty's Secret Service, MI5 for intelligence, MI6 for counterintelligence, mm -hmm. the very first thing she wanted was a remote viewing department because her own scholarship had led her to believe that was entirely possible and would be the most economic way of knowing what her enemies and allies were thinking and planning. And so I go into the story of that in Echoes of Eden, how that department was staffed, what they did to achieve remote viewing, and then look at the parallels between that experience and the 20th to 21st century experience of it in US and Russian intelligence. And I give some case studies of uh, interesting moments when it's worked in phenomenal detail in ways that are totally inexplicable mm -hmm. by the conventions of Newtonian <laughs> physics. And once you've seen it done, once you've experienced it, once you know it's something our governments invest millions of dollars into, it takes you to some really fundamental questions of what is space what is consciousness? If remote viewing is possible, then space and consciousness are not what we usually think they are. There's something else going on, and it takes you down another rabbit hole. I love it because I agree with you with remote viewing. And people, you can do this now. I've had arguments, love them dearly. Joe Montaldo, who owns our, our network here, and he's got his own great shows, Get UFO Undercover and Grey Zone Uncensored with Michelle DeRoche. And he has told me that, no, nope, you can only use remote viewing for seeing big things. Well, I have trained, uh, there's a, Dr. Chuck Kennedy. He um, has a team 
and he works together. I think they have a 93% accuracy rate. It's been measured, but what they do is they work on cold cases, finding missing and lost children as well as people. And I took the first part of his course. So anybody can do this. There's another one, Lori, I always get her last name. She trains with Lynn Buchanan, who is part of the U.S. You know who he is, by the for listeners. Yes. Um, U.S. military remote viewing, which they claim is now defunct. My thoughts are no way, not a sort, not something that valuable. No. They're not going to get. No, exactly. Mm-hmm. Why would they discontinue something that was giving them information of strategic intelligence value? I think I agree with you, Laura Lee. I just think they subcontract it these days. Well, there's a there's a movie out there, The Men Who Stare at Goats. It was based on the remote viewing team and Lynn Buchanan. You can find videos for those listening on YouTube, him talking. He still teaches with Lori. And Lori has a page, I forget what it's called on, look up remote viewing on Facebook. She runs a free four-day masterclass and she get, kind of gets you started on it. There's very different kinds and types of things. But my whole point is you can be taught, like I've run out of time, but there's been times when I've tried tried it and and he gives you a meditation i'm talking about dr chuck kennedy how he taught me and i liked it because eventually as you practice and work with this he's taught people how to go and remote view and check if there's a body found about you know is their heart still beating are they alive what day did they like really succinct information forward backwards in time so there's no limitations i mean you can see anything you need to see this is what the argument with joe was that you can only use it for certain things there are no limitations and i'd love to hear your thoughts too paul it sounds like you agree there's no limits Uh, well i do agree with that and i think Mm -hmm. it relates to that question of what is consciousness Mm -hmm. and um you know another topic that raises the question of what is consciousness is when you study out-of-body experiences mm-hmm. or near-death experiences, um, people who've had those experiences report that once you're out of the body, time doesn't mean doesn't anything. Exist. Nope. Doesn't mm-hmm. exist. And space means something different. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then to bring it back to remote viewing, um, you realize all the conventional limitations of Newtonian physics forget those if we're talking about Mm -hmm. remote viewing Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. we can remote view things uh, that are uh, invisible to the human eye to put it that way Mm -hmm. i mean there was an amazing remote viewing of the rings of jupiter which nobody knew existed prior to 1973 we knew about Mm -hmm. the rings of saturn no one had even suggested was that ingo swan Ingo Swan. Swan. yeah that's i thought so yeah uh-huh. remote viewed it so that's beyond anything to do with having very acute eyesight or being able to see a long way that's something about the fabric of space and how it relates to the fabric of consciousness so these are really profound questions and even though we don't have our head around it we still use the modalities police do use remote viewers Absolutely. when they've got when they're up against a dead end if someone's mm-hmm. been kidnapped um if they've got a cold case now they might not get a result every time from it but it's it produces enough results that the impulse is there among our law enforcement that they do go to people who have this faculty so i think that's that's pretty significant that that's the case i've had a 
fascinating story shared personally with me. And I've asked them if they'd be willing to share it either with Dr. Chuck Kennedy or somebody that would help utilize this information. And what they and I've respected that they didn't want to. And I'll change a few details. It would never identify anybody what I'm gonna about to share here. But this person, and I've seen other intuitive abilities on them, so I know this they were not telling me the truth. They are seeing through the eyes of somebody that is murdering people, um, ch young children. And they know oh, the area, yes. they know where it is, they can see before it's going to happen, what's going to happen. So, you know, again, it draws a very fine line about who you share that with and where you go with it. Because how do you yes. know these things? How do you see these things? Because unless you're dealing, say, like you said, with a police force that understands about, because it's the future that they're seeing. And yes. they're feeling what this 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 person is feeling and why they're doing it. They know what the person looks like, but where yes. do you share these details? Actually, I know two people, not not such a graphic story as what I shared, but same thing, can pick up a picture and from they're over in Italy and there was a kitten that was lost we were looking for of a friend. They were able to pinpoint the streets using Google Maps. I mean, I live in a city of 100,000 people. They've never been to Canada. They were able wow. to do it. How do they do this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. There's a really uh, amusing moment in the history of the remote viewing um, work of US intelligence. Mm -hmm. There was a new chief of staff who came in. He was a little bit skeptical about it. Yeah. And so he knew they were paying remote viewers to do this stuff. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to have some kind of a control group. Mm-hmm to get a sense of how effective these other people were. So he brought in some random others who were not remote viewers mm -hmm. and gave them the same exercises they were giving to their experts. And they could do and it. They, they could do it. <laughs> they could do it. And so one of these random others who'd been brought in <coughs> became mm -hmm. part of the program that way mm -hmm. because she was every bit as good as the mm -hmm. ones they were already paying. And I love that because that does seem to suggest we all have this. We do. We all have this ability. It's a matter of learning to recognize it and learning to nurture it. Learning this to give child, attention to it. This child was exceptional. I wanted to ask you this. Did you say Carl as a six-year-old? Yeah. What yeah. was your deductions as to why? He, like, was he naturally very intuitive? Was he gifted? Because yes, I agree. But to, with that level of accuracy, you know, space and time makes yeah. no difference. We're looking into quantum physics. It's proving that. Same as when yeah. I do a reading with someone halfway across the world, you know, where you'll get people in my city saying, well, don't you have an office? Can't I come in? I, I don't need an office to work with you. Like, I don't. But my point is, and I hope that didn't sound egotistical for people listening. I didn't mean it that way. But there is no, like we're talking about this, there is no space and time when we're, we're dealing with this kind of stuff. So back to Carl. What were your thoughts? Yeah. Like why did he have such a level of accuracy? Well, it was interesting because mm -hmm. I saw Carl do this experiment. His older brother, uh, their older sister, Carl was the best, okay. and I think his advantage was that he was six. Okay. Uh, and that Makes was my, my big take home from that, that mm -hmm. the youngest got into it the fastest, found it the easiest, 
the youngest was the only one who could read blindfolded out of the three. Mm -hmm. And all I can say is there's something, first of all, he hadn't had as much entrainment as the older ones mm -hmm. into what's possible and not possible. Yep. Mm -hmm. Although none of them were surprised when impossible things happened to give them all mm -hmm. due credit. So there's that aspect. But I think also our brain waves are a little bit different at that age. Absolutely. And I, I know with my own kids, uh, I've got a boy who's seven and he will often just speak out loud a thought that I've thought in the privacy of my brain, you know, 30 seconds before. Yeah. And what he is not a seven-year-old sentence or a seven-year-old thought. It's my thought he's just spoken. Mm -hmm. And it'll often be my seven-year-old who will come running and say, you called. And I'll say, I didn't, but I was about to. <laughs> so I just think... <laughs> At that age, there is a natural sensitivity. Uh, they are wired for learning and absorbing information at that Absolutely. age. And so I think everything is in the on position uh, for them to see things others of us who are older might not see or we just might zone it out. We might not give attention to it. Um I can think of um, other experiences where my kids have seen things that I haven't seen. I was going to bring because, that up. Because they're that age. Because oh. their brain waves are operating at that frequency, and they're picking up on things that mum and dad would miss. I will tell you that uh, when I'm working with people with a paranormal situation, for example, I always say, listen to what your children are saying especially younger children what they are seeing trust what they are saying and they are seeing as well as your animals because i truly believe and when we start to get them to about the age of seven or eight that's when some of these abilities start dropping off so my next question is because i think that was powerful what you just said at that age these abilities are switched on wouldn't that be powerful if we, now i we both have an idea being parents of what's probably switching it off but if there was a maintain a way to maintain that switch on yeah right? mm -hmm. well i think um <coughs> I, i'm no expert in this i'm just fitting mm -hmm. my way forwards in this mm -hmm. but i certainly encourage my kids to trust their own perceptions me too so mm -hmm. If my kids say they've seen something, then I, uh, I'm i not going to be one who says, no, you didn't, honey. Or are I you sure you that. did? Yeah. Are you sure that wasn't a dream or whatever? I will listen to their experience yeah. first before I start deciding what I think it is. I, mm -hmm. I want to know what they experienced, what they heard, what they saw. And I think encouraging our kids' creativity and imagination mm -hmm. Mm -hmm is another way of keeping some of these valves open, if I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. I always ask my kids what their dreams were. Yes. And <clears throat> one of the reasons I do that is that <clears throat> I've learned for myself that when I wake up, I think most of us, when we get older, we remember fewer of our dreams for some True. reason. Uh, but there'll be a few that will, you know, cut through the fog, we'll remember, and we'll think, oh, I wonder if that was about something. And I've found that when I wake up in the morning, as soon as I wake up, 
I will have some memory of what I've been dreaming. Agreed. And it's while I'm in that waking up state, that liminal state. The sweet so spot. <laughs> exactly. So what I've trained myself to do is to stay in that spot as long as possible, mm -hmm. to remember the dreams as long as possible. If I've got a willing family member, I would tell them the dreams while I can mm -hmm. remember it because I feel that I'm holding my my brain, my my brain waves in that liminal space for longer by mm -hmm. holding onto that memory, looking at what I'm seeing, repeating the auditory memories. And so I encourage my kids to do exactly the same thing because I think if you can do that, you can practice holding yourself in that liminal state and you recognize what it feels like when you're in that liminal state. Mm -hmm. And as a preacher, I can recognize it and say there have been many moments through the years where I've been preaching in perhaps a church where I'm a guest preacher and then I'll go into an extempore section and I know the feeling. I'm now in a liminal space and I'm not sure what I'm going to say. And I, I, I know that at the end of the sermon, there'll be a line of people saying, how did you know that about us? Because I just I recognize it. the feeling when I'm mm -hmm. in that zone. And it's the same feeling as when I'm holding on to my dreams. And so that's a very long-winded way of saying I always ask my kids to tell me what their dreams are because I think it helps to keep that those connectors present. I have to say, Paul, being the mother of older kids, my eldest is going to be 27 and my youngest has severe autism, but he's, he's 24. He's very much with no disrespect like that precocious age of a five to seven-year-old. But I, I want to tell you that, and again, I can't speak for the world, but I can tell you what you are doing will serve your children for the rest of their lives. Because my kids, even though I wasn't in tune with my abilities when they were little, I always would pick up on stuff and, and things that I probably shouldn't have known. But my whole point is, I can remember the day my eldest was born, and I do believe we communicated telepathically. It's the first time I've ever put this out on the show. To this day... My son, um, <coughs> excuse me, he's part of the LGBTQ community, not that it matters in any way, but he's not overly effeminate, but he'll play up this voice with me because we are so in sync. Now, I know that comes from parents to children, but he'll say, what I'm getting? out of my head because we will finish each other's sentences and what have you <laughs> and this one too not so much but there's a lot that's implied because he's uh, my youngest is limited with verbal and auditory communication but my whole point of this is my two boys I did the same thing also is uh they made it very clear both of them they could communicate with animals to this day yes they can communicate yeah. they're teaching me how to do it yes so you are doing a wonderful thing. Well, mm -hmm. my, my daughter is like that. Mm -hmm. And um, just to pick up on the t telepathy point, mm -hmm. when you have a baby, your, your first go-to for language is telepathy. Yes. Because yes. you don't have the verbal. Mm -hmm. You are trying to learn all the, um, the body language of your baby. Mm -hmm but you and baby are both willing each other to understand each other. Yes. Baby wants you to know what baby needs. Mm -hmm. And so it's our first go-to. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned uh, talking with animals. My daughter Evie's like that. And another thing I do is 
to try and encourage their imagination and there is a crossover between imagination and receptivity to information that's coming from the they wider go field. They hand in hand, I believe, though. They absolutely do. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, if you don't know how to connect with the field, then just uh, encourage your and others' imagination. And I was, I was one evening, I went upstairs to check on the kids before going to bed, make sure they were asleep. And my girl Evie was 10 at the time. She wasn't asleep. So I went in to kiss her goodnight and tuck her in. And she said, I don't know if I've shared this story with you before. She said, I was just thinking that there could be, uh, I don't know if she said ETs, but that's what she meant, you know, beings yeah, from somewhere else in the cosmos uh, hovering over our part of Canberra. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that they were laughing at us because we live on the surface instead of underground. Wow. And they were laughing at us because everything we use is stuck to the ground because we haven't worked out how to master gravity. Wow. And I thought, oh, crumbs. That's quite an advanced thought for That's a 10 year old. Powerful. She said she imagined it. And I said, yeah, I can imagine that too, Evie. And then I said, and you know, that, that could actually be happening, couldn't it? Mm -hmm. And she said, yes, I thought that too. And I thought, oh, I'm so glad I said that because what she was telling me was she believed that was happening right now, but she didn't want to say it straight out. Yeah. She said, I can imagine. Mm -hmm. I said, I can imagine it too, and that could be real. And then she said, yes, I think so too. And so that made me realize that imagination and perception of things beyond our immediate realm they do go hand in hand. And if we want our children to maintain their higher faculties as they grow up, yes. then encourage their imagination, encourage Absolutely. them to speak it, encourage them not to be, not to expect that we will put what they said in some tiny box that makes it irrelevant. You handled that beautifully. And I love that story. We are out of time, Paul. I hope you will come back. Like I said, there was people talking about what we first <laughs> talked about. I could talk to you for hours. I'm so grateful you were here. Where can people find you, your books, your channels, everything like that? You can find me on the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube and on the fifth kind on YouTube. I'm in the comments every day having conversations with people. And for my books, you can go to Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, Hive, Book Depository, wherever books are sold, you'll find Escaping from Eden, The Scars of Eden, Echoes of Eden. Thank and if you is. want to get into conversation with me, you can come to my website, which is paulanthonywallace.com, Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulanthonywallace.com, where I do coaching and get into conversation with you there. I am so grateful. I hope you will come back every time. Like I said, I'd love to. My, my, I love our conversations. I, so do I. My audience <laughs> loves the conversation. I know I'm going to go to my, my Facebook page everywhere else. There's going to be a ton of questions and comments, and I love it.
Um, if you guys want to find me, you can find me on facebook.com forward slash the angel rock. I've got two groups on Facebook. I'm on all social media po- um, profiles, YouTube channel. Um, but the two groups are paranormal university for all things, paranormal angel rocker tribe for more of some of the esoteric things we talked about tonight, but they kind of intermingle. Um, Jeannie says, fantastic, Paul. I want to let you guys know next week, I'm going to try, I will be here. I'm hoping to interact with you, but the interview I referenced that I, I've been trying to upload, I've got it uploaded, is exactly what I talked about um, with Garnet Schulhauser. He wasn't able to make the show live, but we pre-recorded it, and it's going to be some stimulating, interesting conversation. We talk about what we believe happens when you die and all kinds of things, so I hope you'll join us. So be back Back next week, same time, same space. Paul, I can't thank you enough. I love talking to you. Uh, Laura Lee, it's been an absolute pleasure. I look forward to next time. I can't wait. And everybody here, thank you for being here wherever you are. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. And lastly, remind you, if you didn't catch the live show, you can listen to us anywhere. Um, you can see it on our YouTube channels, but you can listen to us anywhere our um, podcasts and live talk radio is, or even pre-recorded, but you can find us. Anyways, see you next week, everybody. Again, Paul, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye.